0: He spread a cloud for a covering, and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord." Those are verses um, 39 to 45 of Psalm 105, verses 23 to 45 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, September the 29th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along. We are continuing our look at the uh, prophecy of Hosea today, chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, also in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 21, verses 27 to 36. And Hosea is going to begin with, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at beth we follow you, O Benjamin. All the cities that are listed there are cities that, that are within the land of Judah. Primarily, Hosea's prophecy is... Uh, is directed at the northern kingdom of Israel. And here we're going to hear Ephraim. The Ephraim is another name for it. Samaria is another name for it. So there are multiple ways of referring to the northern kingdom. It seems that that Hosea's preferred way, or the, the way God preferred to refer to Israel through Hosea, was Ephraim. Here what they're saying is you need to be careful down in Judah that this stuff not come down and infect you. So that's what he's saying, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in beth Aven, we follow you, O Benjamin. So what that's saying is, is, is that you guys be on high alert, because this, the nonsense that's going on up north, this, this whoredom, which is the word that's used throughout Hosea, is coming your way, and you need to stand strong against it. He said, Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I have made known what is sure. And now he's going to have some things to say against the princes of Judah. They have become like those who move the landmark upon them. I will pour out my wrath like water. And so what is this moving the landmark thing? Well, it goes back to Deuteronomy. And and what it's basically saying is, is that you don't move boundary markers. You know that that's that's being crooked, it's being wicked, it's sinful to move a man if a man's property has been staked out for you to move those boundary markers is a sinful wrong thing. And so what he's he's comparing the princes of Judah like that. What he's not saying is that they they're moving boundary markers, but what they're doing? What do you do when you move? your neighbor's boundary marker, right? So you, you basically, you, you, you cheat them out of something that belongs to them. And so what we believe they're referring to here is, is, is that they are overtaxing their people, for instance. You know, we talked about that a little bit yesterday with Matthew and the way that he, he that as a tax collector. Here, he, I believe that what's happening is that God, through Hosea, is accusing that the leaders of Judah— of doing exactly that same kind of thing. It's a wrongful taking of someone else's property, and they're unlikely to be doing it through moving boundary markers, but it has the same effect. So it's a wrongful taking of somebody's property. So it's overtaxation. They're stepping over the rightful boundaries of the civil authorities is, is essentially what that's saying, and wow, do we live in a time where that's happening. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. To be like a moth to Ephraim is, is a, a like a clothing moth that eats everything inside. So it's inside the house, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. They were looking for... Um, alliances, protection alliances primarily, and so they would would seek out these alliances to protect them from their enemies, and the, the simple question is, who should they have been relying on to protect them from their enemies? God. He had sworn to do that very thing, but the problem is, when you're living outside the covenant, you can't really count on your covenant partner to take care of you. You have to amend your ways, or... You can do what they tried to do, which is to go outside the covenant and make covenants with other people for that same sort of protection. And, and God's not going to allow that. That's not something that's going to be encouraged. So they think that, the, that they've skirted around their covenant obligations with the Lord and gone to this other country in Assyria who ends up assimilating them and taking them over ultimately. And ultimately, God's judgment on that is this. He's not able to cure you or heal your wound. That's your problem. You need somebody to cure you and heal your wound. You need to turn back to the Lord. You need to change your ways. But they're trying to avoid having to make those changes. For I'll be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue so you can make all the alliances you want, but, but your problem isn't with other nations. It's with God. It's with your covenant partner. And you've broken that covenant. <clears throat> Everything would be better if you would return. He says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. In other words, I'm going to leave them to their own devices. That's, the, that's how I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to remove my hedge of protection from around them. They're, they're not going to have that anymore. And so then their response is, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. That's recognizing that God has become your enemy. You think your enemy is other nations, but the reality that you need to come to grips with is that's not your problem at all. Your problem is God that he's the one who is tearing you and striking you down. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This is just quoting scripture. And all it's saying is is that, that they're recognizing the truth, the truth that God has promised and the truth that they should be experiencing. God's saying that's the way they'll respond when it's time. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. In other words, it's just nothing more than vapor. Your love is is nothing. It goes away as soon as the sun rises. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I will slay them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment go forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I mean, as a parent, for instance, do, do you want your children to obey you because they love you, or do you want constantly to have them come and bringing you gifts and saying, I'm really sorry I did this. And if you do that over and over and over again, what you realize is you're not sorry at all. That, that has nothing to do with it. You're going to continue to do what it is you do so it's it's not sorrow and it's not love it's it's appeasement you know i don't respect you at all i'll do what i need to do to maintain some semblance of relationship but i, I don't really care about you i don't respect you enough to keep those commandments and those laws and that's exactly what he says is that i desire steadfast love and not sacrifice and and it's so hard for us to read things like the the ode to the law in psalm 119 because we don't think that way about law what we need to do when we think about law is to think about the law giver and his love for us is such that he wants the best for us and wants to keep us safe from harm. I've used that that story before about um, my parents that would allow me to ride on the three streets that made up our neighborhood, but not the street that ran at the end of that, which was a, a four-lane road with a 45-mile-an-hour speed limit. But I couldn't wait. I mean, as soon as you told me not to do that, I needed to just, just go from one street to the next. And, of course, I got caught. <laughs> but it, w- what my parents were trying to do was keep me safe from harm by giving me that rule. And I transgressed it because that, well, that seemed exciting to be able to do that. And so what it showed was, though, in retrospect, I see this is that I didn't love and respect my parents because I didn't I didn't believe that that, that I didn't see the connection between that rule and their love for me. For not wanting me to get hurt. And that's exactly the way we need to approach the law. We need to, to, to approach it from a, a childlike sense of a perspective on things, which is exactly what Jesus says. We need to say, this law is good for me. It, it keeps me from harm. And I know that because I know that the one who gave the law loves me and wants to keep me from harm. And I need to be like a child and say, I honestly don't know what will keep me from harm. So on the... Um, in the gospel today, we're going to see a little bit of this whole law thing and the way that men began to apply the law and think about the law. And it has nothing to do with love. It has to do only with fault finding. And that's not, a, that's not at all why the law exists. It's not so that other people can become, you know, tattletales, but that's exactly the way that it was, that it was approached. And it was partially because, well, I don't do these things, therefore I'm more righteous than you and I'm better than you. That was the whole motivation for this fault-finding thing. So on a Sabbath, when he was going through the grain fields, so they're walking, which is perfectly okay as long as you don't walk too far on the Sabbath. They were going through the grain fields. His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Well, that rubbing them in their hands is the problem. If they just picked a piece of fruit off and ate it, it wouldn't be a problem, but they worked because they had to separate the, the grain from the husk. And some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Oh my gosh, are you serious? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and t- took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. I don't recall David being excoriated for having done that. I don't think that that the the priests didn't rebuke him for eating the bread of the presence. No, that there was a need and this stuff exists to meet human need. they The priests wouldn't allow David and his men to go hungry simply because it was a violation of the the customs. and and that was what we were getting at yesterday in the epistle in the acts lesson where where it said that paul was teaching people the jews who were among the gentiles not to observe the customs well there were times when in the old testament even there were times in the new testament when the customs were laid aside such as the the custom was to leave open the space so that that the the temple could be a house of prayer for all nations. but no, well, right now, not during the feasts, because during the feasts, there are other things, considerations that have to be made. We, we have all these pilgrims here who have to make sacrifice and, and and exchange money so that they can pay the temple tax. And so they were they were easy enough to dispose of whenever it suited them, but no, not here. No, this is the smallest little piece of the law, and so, they, so Jesus compares himself to David, and they're going to find that extremely offensive. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, there, I've been, I get a thing every single day. I get emails about the Talmud, and one of the things that they have to apply is, who can eat this bread? Who can eat the stuff that's given as sacrifice? And, and it's so unbelievable the, the uh, links they have to go to to come up with possible cases that have to be dealt with to say, well, what if this happens? What if this person? Then how do we deal with that? Can that person eat the taruma? Uh, no well that person can't in that situation but they could if this had happened instead i mean it's just so it's it's a serious set of of hair splitting regulations and that's exactly what's happening here and jesus says the son of man is lord of the sabbath i mean he who's lord of the sabbath god but jesus says the son of man is lord of the sabbath so he's saying i am it's a powerful statement. I mean, you can imagine just how offended they were on another Sabbath. He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Really? I mean, you're, you're going to perfectly and completely overlook the fact that he could heal somebody who you've never been able to heal just because he does it on the Sabbath. And so it's It's wrong. Then, because he did it on the Sabbath, that's their whole reason for watching him, so that they could accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And the answer to that is yes, you can do good on the Sabbath, and you can save life on the Sabbath. Those, t- t- those things are commanded. They're, they're, they're exceptions to the law. And after looking around at them, he said to them, stretch out your hand and he did so and his hand was restored now in in most cases what this what that commandment refers to is is how you treat animals on the sabbath what or, or sometimes it what you can do for a person who is in danger on the sabbath and they can't remain in that danger without the possibility of of death or some sort of disfigurement and so you can deal with it that way and so Jesus says i'm just going to heal this guy here and, and he said to him stretch out your hand and as he did so his hand was restored And they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. How did you miss that? (laughs) How did you miss the fact that he's able to heal this guy? And then really miss the even bigger point of this is all Jesus said was, Stretch out your hand. And who healed him? God healed him through Jesus. He's doing things that they can't do. He's doing things by the finger of God. He's doing things that that. The, remember the finger of God illustration that I just used was that in Egypt when the gnats came, the Egyptian magicians could replicate the first sets of uh, signs and the plagues, but they couldn't replicate that one. They said it's done by the finger of God. And so here, what you got is these Pharisees who've been looking at this guy with his withered hand for who knows how long and they haven't been able to do anything about it, or they didn't want to try and do anything about it. Who knows which of the two it is. But here when Jesus heals him, he's doing something they can't do. And their take on it is simply he did it on the Sabbath, therefore he's horrible. Well, God did the healing. Is it wrong for God to work on the Sabbath? And that's the way in which Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Because he is God incarnate. And so God can work on the Sabbath, but man can't work on the Sabbath. And, and God worked on the Sabbath, the very first Sabbath, because what it says is on the seventh day God finished his work, and then he rested. And what the, the uh, rabbis have come up with is to say, okay, so God did something on the Sabbath, so what is it that's lawful for me to do on the Sabbath? So let's say we're coming up to, the, to, the, uh, to dusk, So we're coming up to evening on Friday, which means that the Sabbath is beginning when the sun goes down. So let's say that I have one peg to put in this furniture to hold it completely together. Can I do that? And the answer is no. And what they come up with is that whatever God did in the grand scheme of things is so infinitesimal compared to everything else that he's done that there's nothing that small that we could do, so we can't do anything. So here, though, Jesus can work on the Sabbath because he is God. And so it's a small thing for him to do this thing. But can you imagine your response to that miracle being, we've got to do something about this guy? Why not rather say, wow, this is something maybe we need to even actually investigate his claims and maybe come to a different conclusion." because of what we've seen. But no, their job in their mind is to be fault finders. They've defined righteousness in such a way that they are righteous and Jesus is not. What a remarkable decision. In the Acts passage, so remember yesterday, Paul had taken the the people who had made the vow He had taken those Jews who had made the vow, he had taken them to the temple and took care of everything that was necessary for them to complete the period of their vows. He had paid the fees, he had done everything that was necessary. He purified himself before he went in there, they purified themselves, everything was, quote, kosher. When the seven days were almost completed, the seven days that would finish their vow, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, so these are the ones who have persecuted him out there in the hinterlands, They stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. So what they want is to put an end to everything that Paul has done. They don't like the idea that these Gentiles don't have the same obligations laid upon them that the Jewish converts do specifically more than that, the Jews who had not converted want to now accuse Paul of things that he's actually not doing and and ending it up with, hey, and and, and in addition to that, because he can make a defense for that, right? So in addition to that, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. Oh my gosh. Why? Why did they say that? For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So here they didn't even have evidence. They just make an assumption. That's all I have to say about assume. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. So there's a hubbub and all these people are now rushing to the temple. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. So now nobody can come into the temple. Because Paul has been accused of defiling the holy place. And as they were seeking to kill him, for what? Not for teaching people all this other stuff. No, for, for supposedly bringing an uncircumcised person into the temple. So they seized him and dragged him. Okay. <clears throat> he at once took soldiers and centurions and round. Oh, I'm sorry. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort. So these are Romans now that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them because he knew where it was going to happen. This, <laughs> this is during the festival, so they, they would have expected that, the, that if there's going to be a problem in Jerusalem, well, it's going to be those Jewish people down there. We don't know what it is, but that's where we're going to go. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. <laughs> we hadn't been told that before, that we just saw that he was seized and dragged out of the temple, and they were seeking to kill him. But now we find out they were actually beating him at that point. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So he comes up, sees this happening, sees this man being beaten, and decides immediately he must be guilty of something. So let's arrest him and, and chain him. And then he inquired who he was and what he had done. <laughs> let's let's arrest him first and then figure out what we what's going on here and some in the crowd were shouting one thing some another now i will say this he protected paul from the mob by arresting him and putting him in chains and taking him away so so the, some in the crowd were shouting one thing some another it sounds familiar right i mean it's it's what happened in ephesians frankly it's what happened in ephesus i mean it's what happened in other places and it's exactly what happened at the trial of jesus people they can't get witnesses to agree. And as he could not learn the facts, because of the uproar, he ordered him to brought into the barracks. So in other words, let's get him out of the midst of these crazy people, and let's take him over here and question him here in private. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried away by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him, in the same way that they cried out, crucify him, when Jesus was there. See, it never helps to appease the mob. It never, ever helps to try and appease the mob, and Jesus didn't do it, never made the, that mistake. Why Paul did it, I have no idea. He trusted the apostles, and, and, I, and I'm positive the apostles didn't have any bad motives. They thought They didn't think this would go this way, but they didn't know the character of those characters from Asia. They didn't know what happened in Thessalonica. They didn't know what happened in Lystra and Derby and all these other places where Paul ran up against persecution for the preaching that he was making and the misinterpretations of what he was preaching either. Jesus didn't bow to the mob when they said you shouldn't be doing these things on the Sabbath. He continued to do them because his conscience was clear and he could persevere in these things in the, in the way that when God convicts you, you need to be quick to turn from sin. But if God's not convicting you and it's only these people who are spreading malicious rumors and lies and trying to find fault, ignore them. Ignore them without any problem at all and move on with your life and keep moving with the Lord.